back to head down to Holy Cross Kids and Worship. <clears throat> the rest of you, if you could open a Bible to uh, the book of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. It's in your uh, order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table. I'd love to give one to you. It's our gift. Grab one of those at some point, whether it's right now or before you leave or, I don't know, somewhere around there. Uh, in case this wasn't announced before, I, j- I just want to say this. If you're, if you're new to Holy Cross... By that, I mean, like, whether this is your first week or maybe you've been here for a couple months, um, but you're still kind of, this is your experience of Holy Cross, right? Not the rest of the stuff that we do as a church, and you, maybe you're wondering, like, how do I get involved? How do I do all that stuff? Give me 10 minutes after worship today. 10 minutes. Okay, we'll be in room 100. It's called New to Holy Cross. I'm just going to run you through real briefly about who we are and, and next steps and how you can do that. Um, so, it. If, again, if you're new and you're just wondering some of those things, because it's hard, right? Get involved in a church, get involved in a community like this can be intimidating, because you walk in, you're not sure, like, who's new, who's been here for upteen years, none of us, because we haven't been here that long, but, you know, how, how do we get involved? Give me ten minutes, okay? Right after worship, uh, and we'll, we'll get that done for you, called New to Holy Cross. Again, room 100, which is downstairs, all the way down, the last room on the left, okay? All right, now... Uh, however you can have the passage in front of you, go ahead and do that. But uh, let, me, let me ease us into this. So we're coming to the end of this series. We've been uh, in John's first letter since January. And um, as we come to the end of this, really today, these, there are three verses left. Presbyterians, so we're not going to do all three in one day. You know, we're going to do two today and then uh, one next week. But... What we're coming to is the summation of what John has been trying to do. And so, given that, since we've been in here since January, it's good to try and get reoriented to what John's trying to accomplish, right? So here's what we know. The church or churches, because we're not entirely certain that John is writing to, have been troubled. And that's kind of normal. I don't know if if you're not familiar with the New Testament or maybe you still have this kind of idyllic picture of the New Testament. A lot of times, if you've been a Christian a while, you idolize the early church, right? That the early church is this kind of idealized picture of goodness and wonder. And if we could just get back to that. And then you read 1 Corinthians and you're like... This doesn't match. Like, how does this work out? The, the early church was actually a mess. Of course it was. It was new. We're still trying to figure that out. Like, you know, if babies don't have someone to take care of them, they end up being a mess, right? That's just what happens. And the early church is no different. And so in, in uh, these churches that John is writing to, here's what we know is going on. Uh, they're having a hard time because a group of people, probably from within the church has left the gospel, left the core teachings of Christianity, and instead is trying to convince others to believe that Christianity must change or die. Something's got to give. That what Jesus did is nowhere near as important as the new teachings that they bring, the new new life that they can bring as opposed to the old-fashioned morals of, of the Bible, things of that nature. And then John is writing to them to help assure them what is and what isn't Christian. And not just that, but then how to evaluate the teaching they hear, right? How do do I evaluate? There's so many voices out there, and there's even more today. And today is basically the summation of the entire letter, right? Next week is John's little parting shot that is completely random. No one really knows why it's there. It's one little sentence, uh, children keep yourselves from idols. And we're going to talk about that, but this week is kind of him summing up the rest 
of his letter. John is making things clear. Here is what we know. And in a letter that's made to give us assurance of things, when someone says, we know this, we should pay attention. Right? And that's important because we can get distracted by peripheral things. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, Dave, when he was preaching on the verses just before this, uh, that, that a lot of the time that, that he was speaking, he had to bear down on things that were an aside that John was saying. John said an aside that had to do with this sin that leads to death, right? And he just kind of threw that out there, and we're all like, what is that? And so, you know, we had to understand that, and that's good. But that was not core of what John said. It was almost like he just kind of, it was there, and, but it wasn't the core of what he said. We need to understand what is the core of what he's trying to say, and so that's what we get at today. So let's take a look at what John tells us we know. If you have your place in John's letter, would you stand? We're in John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, just two verses. But as short as our reading is, that doesn't take away from its power, because the power is not in verbs and nouns, it's in the Spirit of God. This is God's Word. And so hear it in that way. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's God's Word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, though we are not all here expectant of this, whether we know it or not, We are here right now so that you can speak to us. And so, Lord, I I pray that it would be your words that people hear and not mine that you would let me get out of the way so that Jesus can come forward. Because you alone hold the words of eternal life, that you are the one who forms your church, draws people to yourself, who uh, sends the Spirit in power to do mighty deeds among your people. So we ask that you would do that. You give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and Holy Spirit, that you would come and do mighty deeds in the name of Jesus, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So I want to make sure we have time to get to everything this morning. There's a lot in these two verses. So we're just going to jump right in. Uh, We're going to look at this uh, passage in three ways this morning. We're going to look at uh, being delivered from bondage. We're going to look at being delivered from unbelief. And then delivered from idolatry. Okay, Delivered from bondage, from unbelief, and from idolatry. And as always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's going to help you. If not, leave it there. Okay, So let's, let's jump in to delivered from bondage. So John begins three of the last four verses of this letter. Three of the last four verses, he begins with the phrase, we know. In a letter that's about us gaining some measure of assurance in light of what are false conceptions of faith, someone telling us in three of the last four verses, we know something should get our attention. Okay? And so Dave covered the first of those last week. We're going to be dealing with the last two. Look at verse 19. John says this. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All right. Now, most of us, when we read this, probably either check out or gloss over that phrase. The whole, because we hear it and we're like, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And, and so it, we hear that and we go, okay, this is like some Tolkien novel or something. I don't know what this is. This is weird. It sounds primitive, right? Plus it has that whole us versus them thing. We hate us versus them in our culture. We're very inclusive. We want to be inclusive except for people who are exclusive. So we want to, it's very us versus them. But what John is talking about is actually summing up an aspect of the work of Jesus. But to get to that, we have to get to the worldview that John was talk, that John is kind of assuming that I am almost guaranteeing none of us share. Because his worldview is shaped by the whole story of the Bible, not just bits and pieces of it. And, it's, and it, it, it kind of works like this. So um, the, in the first part of the Bible that, that you would call the Old Testament, right, the entire world is kind of divided up into two main epics. Okay? Uh, the first of those is creation. That's where, uh, and that's in, in terms of the Bible narrative, right, that's a little bitty part of that first of, of the Bible. It's just little few chapters. But in that, God creates the world. He creates it good. He, he, uh, he puts humanity over his earth to exercise his wise, just, and loving rule over all things. That we were actually created to exercise his rule to see everything flourish, including one another. That's why we're here, and to do that through a dependent relationship with him, meaning that we are from him to get our, our value and our life and, and our breath and our meaning and our understanding of reality, right? What is right and wrong and all that stuff. But the second epic took place because we broke relationship with God, that we were deceived into believing that God was not worthy of our trust, that though made for a dependent relationship, we didn't want that. In fact, we're told that we couldn't really trust him to... He wasn't worth depending on, and that we could, in fact, be independent of him. And so when we did that, when we turned from him, we broke relationship. And, and that break of relationship is what the Bible calls sin, not primarily about rules, right? It's primarily about relationship. And doing that had disastrous effects. And around here, we summarize those effects. We talk about the effects on the individual as being uh, uh, guilt, we're guilty before God, brokenness, that something in us has changed fundamentally, Bending us away from God by nature, not by nurture, but by nature. So guilt, brokenness, and alienation. That we are, now, uh, we are now separate from the God that we were made to find our satisfaction and joy in. Right? What John is assuming here in this passage is that this epic is defined by a bondage. And the Bible would call this period, as different points, you see this talked about in the, the latter part of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, talk about it as this evil age. Jackson, you put up that, that next slide for me, please. No, no, no one before that. There you go. Okay. Now, so colors are a little skewed in this version, but that's, that's fine. That's, that's projection. So creation is defined by that, that kind of yellowish, supposedly green line that then there's a fall into this evil age. And, and the entire Bible kind of understands this, that there, once we had fallen, that the entire, not just individuals, but the whole world had been fundamentally shifted into something called this evil age. It is a world set in rebellion against God, under the curse of God, and in need of rescue by God. And that is what John means when he says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So the evil one's the devil. I know that we are all far too modern to believe in the devil, right? Because the devil is like, has got horns and he breathes fire and pointy tail. Actually not. That's, that's medieval artistry's vision of the devil. The Bible's vision of the devil is actually far easier to understand. See, the devil is the one who birthed the lie. 
The devil is the one who convinces us that we need to be independent of God. Well, that happens all the time, right? Sure, maybe you haven't seen the horn guy with the flames, but believe that you can't really depend on God, that he's not worthy of your trust? That happens like five minutes ago, 30 seconds ago, all the time. Maybe he's more pervasive than we think. Basically, what John is saying is that the whole world is in bondage, under the power of, in slavery to, that lie. That is what he means when, he, when he's talking about this. And so that is what the Bible is talking about when it says the evil age. Now, think through the implications of this worldview. Because that worldview is different than the way we normally view things. Slavery, bondage, those are not things you can get yourself out of. Right? Those are not things that you can kind of just kind of work hard or figure out or kind of remove yourself from. But that gets to what he says before that stuff about being under the power of the evil one. He says this, we know that we are from God. Now, a better way of saying that, actually a better translation of that would be, we know that we belong to God. You see how that, how that affects that we belong to God. The whole world, the world as a whole lies under the power of the evil one. That You see, God had promised to make things right. That this evil age wasn't to continue. That there would be an age to come. That's the way the prophets talk about it. That's the way the Apostle Paul talks about it. That there would be an age to come. That he would make things right. And that's what John is talking about here. Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, you belong to God. You've been redeemed from your bondage, purchased in fact, and now belong to him. You're his possession. And that's why Jesus came. And this is important for John's summary. Because over and over in this letter, most of you will remember that John is impressing upon us that Jesus came to do something, not to teach something. That Jesus' teachings, apart from what he did, are useless. Let me say that again. Jesus' teachings, apart from what he did, are useless. Try and keep the Sermon on the Mount without a regenerate heart. You will either lower the bar or lie to everyone. You can't. Jesus came to do something, to follow me. Because sin is what threw the world into this evil age. Because whatever we look at the world and we see the world's in chaos, what put it there was not just atrophy, it was us. It was what we did, our sin. And because sin was the place where it started, sin had to be the place where the conclusion came. So Jesus came and he lived perfectly, embodying this age to come. And he died to bear the weight of sins so that it could be judged in him. And then he rose again so that uh, the, the age to come could dawn in him. That's what that little part is talking about there. The cross is this place in which Jesus finally brought in the new creation. You see, the New Testament understands that we live in an overlap of these two ages. That in Jesus' cross, his resurrection, his ascension, that now this age to come has come sh- shooting back into our now. That though the world still lies as a whole under the power of the lie, we no longer do. We have been rescued from that by Jesus. We belong to God. And that brings us to knowing our place. Listen, if you've been here in this series, you know that John is constantly giving us these dichotomies. These dichotomies that I think we hate. Maybe you don't think that. Maybe you've grown to think that. I don't know. I think we hate these dichotomies. He gives us another one here. You either belong to God through Jesus or you're under the power of the evil age. 
you either belong to God and Jesus, or you are part of this evil age. And I know that's hard to swallow for many of us, right? Because we want to think about the fact that we, we think we're neutral. Then, in fact, wouldn't that make God loving if everyone in the world were neutral? And we all have this equal access type thing, or something weird is going on like that. That we're pretty good people, or that all roads lead to God somehow or some way. But John doesn't allow that. And neither does Christianity. You either belong to God through Jesus or to the lie. But there is no neutral ground. But did you notice this? Because this is important, because that sounds really harsh. Did you notice that when he says, we know, attached to that we know is not, we know that we did something good that allowed us to belong to God in Jesus Christ. That what we know has nothing to do with morality. You see, that's why you and I can't be good enough. The issue is not our morality per se, it's our position. It's our position, it's where we stand. So we don't need to be reformed in that way, we need to be rescued. And the only way this can happen is through Jesus. And so when Jesus returns, as that kind of chart epitomized, when Jesus returns, this evil age will be fully and finally judged. And on that day, Listen to me close. On that day, the only thing that will matter is whether you have moved from one camp to another through faith in Christ. There's another aspect here that we need to get. And that's for Christians in particular. If you're a Christian here this morning, listen close. If you're not, just kind of listen in. You can, you can um, kind of uh, you know, listen in on, on the family conversation here. This is an aspect we need to get. John is declaring that Christians no longer live under the power of this evil age. In other words, that our lives are no longer in bondage to the lie. Does your life reflect that? Look, here's the thing. Maybe you're new to this church and this word won't mean anything to you. Maybe it does. We're a reformed church. We're part of that branch of the Protestant Reformation that calls itself reformed. And what that means is we have a, we would like to say we have a healthy, realistic view of sin's impact on the individual, right? And what we mean by that is it it totally changes us and affects every bit of us, and that is very true. But what we often use that knowledge of, or what we would call that doctrine to do, is to justify why we're not changing, because, see, you can't, be, you can't ask me to change. Look how sin has just totally messed me up. I'm, I'm just unable. Nothing. I've got nothing. Everything is, I am a worm. You know, like, everything is bad in me. We look at Jesus' life. We look at the ethic he proclaimed. Things like, turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor. Like, uh... You know, uh, you, can, you can serve either God or money, but not both. And we go, oh, well, that, you know, that's great for Jesus, and that's something I'm aiming for, and maybe one day I'll be there. And what that really means is, I'm just going to ignore it and hope everyone else gives me a pass. That's great for Jesus, but I can't be expected to do those things. Really? Why not? If John is right, and you belong to God, not to the, the power of the evil one, then why not? Look, I'm not going to say that you will ever be rid of your selfishness completely or your greed or your lust until Jesus comes back. But you belong to God. (laughs) You see how great the work of Jesus is? Listen, Jesus is not just here to get you out of sin's penalty, but power. He came to bring a kingdom. And that kingdom has has a way of being. And you belong to God. 
which means you were to live that out now in the world. He didn't just came to deliver you from penalty of sin, but also from its power over you. One day he will come and deliver us from its presence. He has come to deliver you from your bondage to just living for yourself so you can live for God. And so, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, and this is not true of you, it is time to repent of our excuses and to start living in anticipation of this age to come that is now in our lives through faith in Jesus. So we're delivered from our bondage, but we're also delivered from our unbelief. Look down at verse 20. Just the first part. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Stop there. Now, there, there are some translation issues here that make this uh, a little more difficult to understand, or at least we don't get the nuance that's there. The overall gist is pretty easy, right? Jesus came and he did something. And what that has done is it allowed us to know him. Okay, good. All right, that's the overall gist. So let's, the, the reality is, is that John is being ingenious with the way he's dealing with it. It's just hard for us to see in English. But let me deal with the first part first. So John talks about the fact that we know that the Son of God has come. Now, remember, this is a summation. We're talking about summary, so we have to remember some of the things that have been going around. In John's day, just like in ours, it was really popular to see that, uh, that Jesus wasn't really human. And the reason for that is because we can't... It was hard for them, it's hard for us to accept that God would actually become like us. Right? And and we struggle with that today because we think that we have an idea of what God must be like and what God must be like, whether that's affected by Western deism or Eastern pantheism, is still, God would never get his hands dirty and kind of take on our flesh. But when John says, we know that the Son of God has come, he's striking against this. Jesus came in the flesh. And that's really important. And the why of that comes next. John says, and he has given us understanding. All right, now stop there. This is great. There are a bunch of ways in Greek to talk about understanding. A bunch of words, understanding, knowledge, all that stuff. In fact, the better word, if you were trying to communicate what we think he's trying to communicate, would have been to use the word knowledge, because that's the most common. And the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. It's where we get the word knowledge from, right? Uh, And so... That, but he doesn't use that word here. And that is because it is very likely that these false teachers, this group of people that have risen up, are using that same word, gnosis, to talk about their knowledge. That what's important is not what Jesus did, but in fact that Jesus came to give gnosis, to give knowledge, and they are the ones who have that special gnosis, that special knowledge that the apostles don't have. And John totally destroys this. But here's how. Because when he says that he's come to give us understanding, he doesn't use the word gnosis. You're like, oh, so what? If there's a bunch of ways to talk about it, what does that matter? It's because of the word he does use. Now, we translate it, or the ESV translates it, uh, understanding, but the word, for you, for you Bible geeks who like to write this stuff down, is dianoia. Why does that matter? It matters because of this. It can, it can be translated insight, it can be translated understanding, but in the Old Testament, it's most often used not to talk about knowledge, but the heart. That the work of Jesus wasn't to give us something up here, but to give us something in the core of our being. You see, in the Jewish worldview, uh, the, the heart is not the seat of the emotions. The seat of the emotions in the Jewish worldview was a little lower. It was right here. And you're like, what? Yes, it was in the gut. Why? How do you feel when you're nervous? 
oh, biological reactions, right? Or um, if you're married, the first time you had a date with your spouse, right? My wife and I used to call it, it was our anniversary yesterday, 17 years. Okay, but um, we, we used to call it the good sick feeling, right? You feel a little queasy, you feel a little weird in there. It's because that's, the Jew, Jewish folks would look at that and go, that's the seat of your emotions. But the seat of your, the core of who you are, that was the heart. Why is that important? Because Christianity proclaims, friends, that we don't need new information. We don't need new gnosis. We need a new heart. It isn't just that we don't know the right things. Right? Well, one of the Psalms, the heavens declares the glory of God. Uh, the New Testament writer Paul, in one of his letters, in the letter of the Romans, says that our problem is not knowledge because what we do with that knowledge is the problem. We continually suppress the truth in unrighteousness, is what he says. That our problem is that we don't know enough. The problem is that our hearts are rebellious. And that's another aspect of what Jesus came to do. To know the one who is true, to enter into relationship with God, we have to be given that heart. Now, let's apply this really quick with gifted knowledge, because this impacts us on several levels. First, we need to understand the gift nature of what John is talking about. Because what John is not talking about is that we did something to get this understanding, or this heart, or this insight, but that it was given to us. John says the Son of God came to give us understanding so that we might know the one who is true. You hear this a lot from me if you've been here for a while, but we need to hear this over and over and over again. Because this is the core difference between Christianity and any other system of belief. What it takes to enter into relationship with God, to know the true one, as John says, is a gift. It's a gift. It's not getting the right ideas. It's not doing the right morality. It's a gift. And that gift is given by Jesus and it is received by us. It is not earned by us, nor is it given by anyone else. You can't ultimately think your way to God, friends. You and I are not neutral. We are not neutral. Listen to me. Christianity is not unthinking. I know we have that rap. Unfortunately, we've been given that reputation by a bunch of folks who are as, as uh, blatant in their dogmatism as they claim we are. Uh, Christianity is not unthinking. But what Christianity does do is acknowledge that we all begin from a starting point. To believe that Jesus is the Son, to believe that Jesus is Lord, is to give up on your autonomy. It's to say, I no longer have the right to determine what is true, right, and good for me and mine. Just to give up on that, to look, to place yourself under his authority, and to look to him to determine right and wrong and good and evil and life and death. And let's be honest, you and I don't want that. We like our autonomy. The good news is God is gracious, that he gives gifts. And some of you remember this. Some of us in this room remember going from death to life. I do. I wasn't looking for him, I wasn't looking and trying to think my way to him. He gives gifts. He isn't asking you to figure it out. But, and here's the kicker, you cannot receive a gift with full hands. If your hands are full of you, full of what you know, full of what you can believe, what you can wrap your mind around, you can't receive a gift. You have to look to him to give you insight, to give you a heart to believe. Which means we depend on God even for that. We do that because by nature we are bent in on ourselves. 
Our problem is not a lack of information. Our problem is a heart of rebellion. And only Jesus can change a heart. Others may give you a path to follow or rules to keep or knowledge to understand, but Christianity gives you a Savior who takes a heart of unbelief and exchanges it for one full of faith. So we've been delivered from bondage. We've been delivered from unbelief. Lastly, we're delivered from idolatry. Now, that word idolatry is a really churchy word, and next week we're going to dig into that more, but we need to just kind of cover a little of what John's talking about here. So follow me. John says, the last part of verse 20, and we are in the one who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Now, there are a couple things I want to get at here. The first is the notion of true. When you and I talk about true, uh, it's probably not what John was trying to get across here, though it's included. Uh, Probably a better way of translating that would be uh, to say real. Real. So what John is saying is that this one that he's talking about is the real God. And now to say that implies that there are others that aren't real, right? And our immediate thought as soon as we hear that as as Westerners inundated with Western secularism is that, oh, come on, again... Primitive people, polytheistic. We don't really believe in other gods, do we? Do we? Well, look. Here's what's being declared here. There is the real God, as he's revealed in Scripture. And by Scripture, I mean the whole of Scripture and not certain pieces of it that make God look like what we think he should look like. The whole of Scripture. There's the real God. And then there are the fake ones everywhere else. Now, again, as Western secularists, as as most of us have been kind of discipled in, uh, that that sounds horribly, dreadfully close-minded, right? I mean, what we want to do is we want to take uh, Yahweh and Jesus and Allah and Krishna and the the universe of the New Age movement, kind of line them all up and go, aren't aren't these all kind of, what do we do with all these? And, And then here's what we do. In the secular West, this is what we do with all of those ideas. And listen close, because we don't even think about doing this. This is what what would be called um, precognition. This is before our thoughtful knowledge. This just kind of happens because it's the world we live in. We take all those ideas and we go, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Those are all just different ways of talking about the same guy. Huh. Which means that what we've done is we've said, no, 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 you don't understand It's the God of Western secularism who's the real one. And all of these others, they're just kind of fake. They have to subsume themselves under it or him or her, whatever you want to say about it. Now, the reality is is that that kind of claim, the kind of claim that John is making here, that no, 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 the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, that's the, the real God and the others are fake. This isn't the first time this was, like, we're not hearing this and it's challenging to us and not to anyone else. And in the Roman world, that would have been challenging because, the, because it wasn't Western secularists who created that idea of the, of the one God that everyone else has to exist under. The Romans did. And see, that's what got the Christians in trouble with the Romans so much. Because their God that subsumed all these other gods was the God who kept civil order. Made you a good citizen. You just had to keep everybody under that one. So John's not going to let us do that with the God of the Bible. He says this one is the real God. 
The second thing that he says in this verse is startling about Jesus, because John says, this one is the real God and eternal life. This one. Now here's the kicker. Again, like today, in John's day, it was really easy to see Jesus as a prophet or as a teacher, but nothing more than that. Not God himself. And I'm not going to get into the apologetics of all that. I, I mean, we could if you want. If you want to talk about that, we can. Uh, all I want to do is ask you something. Have you actually seen Jesus? I mean, by that I mean metaphorically to some degree. Have, have, you, seen, have you read the stories about this guy? The eyewitness testimony? Have you seen the compassion he gives? And I don't just mean to certain people. There are certain people we think, oh yeah, well that would be easy, right? Like the widow of Nain. There's the widow from the city of Nain who's, who's a widow. So her husband's dead. And her only son is dead too which means she has no ability for social um, standing. There's no, uh, sh- sh- there's no welfare system. She's done. Like all of her systems of provision are now gone. And Jesus meets them on this funeral march as they're taking her son's body out of the city. He has compassion on her and he, he raises her son and gives him back. And we think, oh, that, that's easy. You're right, that is easy. Now what about on the Roman governor that, who's about to kill him? Maybe you've never read the story this way, but in, in, uh, in the Gospels, when it talks about the discussion going on between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, at one point you can tell that Pontius Pilate is a little edgy on what is about to happen. Are you a king? Are you really a king? And, and as Jesus is interacting with him, one of the things he says is, Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would help me. Now, with ears to hear, what that means is, Pilate, I'm no threat to you. If I was, you'd already be dead. He's having compassion on a man who is about to nail him to a cross. I'm not a threat to you in the way you think I am, Pilate. Or how about in the garden, right before he was, he was uh, captured, when his betrayer comes and kisses him on the cheek so that everyone knows who he is, and he says, Judas, really? You're going to betray me with a kiss? Okay. Or the fact that when one of the folks who came with the soldiers, you know, one of his friends got a little too antsy with the knife, and and so, ear, cut off, gone, and he heals the guy, the guy who's about to take him off in chains. He heals him, he has compassion on him. Who can do that? Or maybe not his compassion, Maybe, maybe it's his strength. His strength shown in bearing with accusations, in bearing with beatings, bearing with the selfishness of those around him, like his, two of his favorite disciples, who when he declared to his disciples, I'm about to die, were thinking so much of him that they said, hey, Jesus, can you give us anything we want? Or have you looked at his power? His power in pushing back death and evil and disease. Let me tell you something, friends. Either Jesus is God in the flesh, or you should want him to be. Let me conclude with this issue of truth and life. This last part. So often we see faith in the same way we see everything else, right? Some kind of economic exchange. I give God faith. He gives me forgiveness and and some kind of ticket to heaven. But John says that's not the case. It's way better than economics. It isn't an exchange. It's union. And that's what all this in language is about, right? Where he says, like, 
We are in Him who is, in, who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's all about union. Uh, Christianity is not about God standing aloof from you on some kind of judicial bench, giving you something and you walking away. Christianity is about you being united to Jesus by faith, and so then united to the life of God. Brought into the life of God through faith in Jesus. That is the life we were made for. That is the life of the age to come. Like was on that chart. That is eternal life. Remember, if you've been here, you remember that we said that eternal life isn't so much about quantity of life as it is about quality of life. This comes, this quality of life comes by being united to Jesus. And so friends, truth and life can be found in Jesus or not at all. I know that's difficult, right? I know that's difficult for some of us, but we can't escape that this is what is said here. We may, we may choose not to believe it, but we can't say that, we, that, that Christianity doesn't claim this. We want life and everything else. Things we'll talk about a lot next week, things like money, and sex, and jobs, and success, and being right, in our world being calm, maybe even just being known. But John says, what you look for life from is your God. But true life can be found by being in Jesus because he is that life. Which means that the life you long for is found only in God because God is the source of life. When you've you've been given that life, then then you can be freed to be givers in the world. You can be freed to, to actually embody that pattern of life that Jesus did. So look to Jesus. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the only way to God. John says, or Jesus says that in John's gospel, right? In John 14, verse 6. But he is also the pattern and the hope of the life that we are to live out in our neighborhoods and workplaces. Jesus and Jesus alone delivers us from our bondage so that we now belong to God. Jesus and Jesus alone delivers us from our unbelief so that he has given us a heart that is willing to believe. And Jesus and Jesus alone delivers us from our idolatry so we may worship him and him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, you know the weakness in me and in my words. And so I ask only that you would help us as we come to the conclusion, the end of this letter, that we would begin to sum up what it calls us to. It's like a radical belief in a radical God. A willingness to give our faith and trust to someone. And so out of that faith and trust to live Not living, seeking life from other things, but only from you. And so because of that, being willing to give our lives for others. Help us to do that. Form this church. Form Holy Cross. Midtown and in the east in Fishersville. Form us into a a, a church that embodies that. That lives the age to come out in anticipation of that day. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.